So I think the systems and processes, the writing down everything so that, you know, your employees can train or retrain themselves is really important. That culture that you create in your core values is really the heartbeat and the center of any of this stuff, satellite stuff that I talk about working. So if you've got problem people that you're just letting ride because you don't want to deal with it and, you know, or maybe you have a bigger company, you don't even know there's some problem people and you don't have that management layer that is really working toward those core values and goals, things are going to start falling apart. Welcome, Trust Builders. I'm Sue Dyer, and this is Lead with Trust where we explore how leaders can build their business on a foundation of trust and reap the rewards of becoming the top performer in their market. Leaders that understand how to use and leverage trust are uniquely positioned to disrupt their industry and dominate their market. Distrust of businesses and business leaders is at an all-time high. Trusted businesses must have trusted leaders and your team your customers, and your vendors are waiting for you to step up and elevate the level of trust in your business. My hope is that this podcast can help you start your trusted leader journey. Hi, Trust Builders. I'm really excited to share this episode with you today. I was able to uh, interview Natasha Miller, who is the founder of Entire Productions. And uh, she's also in the middle of writing a book that's going to be called Relentless, which we talk about in the episode as well. A little bit about Natasha is that she went from being homeless to being on the Inc. 5000. She's been on the Inc. 5000 for the last three years. She has also been in uh, Entrepreneur Magazine's 260 list of the best entrepreneurial companies in America. And uh, she has really grown her business. Even during this pandemic, she has a business that does events and she was able to grow her business during a time when we were seeing no, no events happening and yet her business grew. So here you go with someone who can take what's happening in the world and still make it happen because of her mindset. And she has created such a trusted group of people that work for her that her business and her own words is it's a self-operating. She spends about 20% of her time running the business. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I sure enjoyed uh, talking with her and look forward to reading her book when it comes out on March 22nd, 2022. Here you go. Let's check in. Well, welcome. I'm so excited for this today. I've just been such an admirer of yours, and I'm excited to hear about your new book. But mostly, I want to just learn about your story because I know that's what your new book is about, too. So, welcome, Natasha. Thank you, Sue. Really great to um, have met you and to be uh, joined with you via someone we have in common that's pretty magnificent. Yes, she is, isn't she? We're talking about Amber Vilhauer, who is our book launch director for both of our books. And so Natasha Miller is someone who you you may have heard of. 
but she has an extraordinary story and I don't want to give any of it away. I want to just let her run with it because that is the basis of her book that's going to be coming out next year. Do you have have a launch date yet? March 22nd. March 22nd. Mark your calendars. Yes. Go there to Amazon and pick it up. So here, you're going to get a little preview here today. So listen up, everybody. So so tell us a little bit about your story, because to me, it's just extraordinary. And as a fellow musician, it's also extraordinary. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Well, like a lot of people and a lot of entrepreneurs, I grew up in a not ideal uh, situation, and um, I ended up finding myself with very low inflection points and uh, ended up actually, as I went through life with some very high inflection points. So the book chronicles my history. It's really, it's a memoir, but it's a business memoir because of my situation. I guess I was forced into entrepreneurship. I was talking to someone today and said, instead of an addiction to drugs or alcohol or, you know, things that are bad for you. I'm addicted to growth and to uh, studying and becoming my the greatest person that I can within my ability. And it really is an addiction. And I don't know how different it is actually from the others, but it does have some more positive outcomes than the other. And it's um, interesting that, uh, yeah, you, you relate it to as an addiction because a lot of people do think that entrepreneurs get that fire and they're a little bit, um, you know, addictive person of their families might say they're a little addicted to it. Yeah. I'm addicted to drive and to excellence and to learning and becoming all the things, uh, my greatest ability. And, you know, I'm able to put it aside when I need to rest and I'm able to put it aside to be with family and friends, but it is always the driving force in my mind. And it's always the energy that I'm going back to. So and what's the drive? what is the, what's behind the drive? Do you, Cause I know I have that drive yeah. and I understand what's behind it. What's behind your drive. You know, I used to think, and I was really struggling. I used to think that the fire that the gas that, you know, ignited the fire was my reliving and spiraling through all the negativity of how I grew up. And I thought if I let go of that and didn't have that to push against that, I would lose my drive for success or I'd lose the successes in my life, but it was also very much eating me up inside. And with the help of a therapist, a little bit of a, a emergency room panic attack situation, which really happened and adopting a cat. (laughs) These are the three steps to mental health. (laughs) I was able to restructure and reframe my brain to move around mentally this mountain that I kept, you know, heaving myself over and spiraling down into. And it turns out I don't need that fire to push me through. Like I, I'm, I can do it myself now. And that was a really big moment to overcome. Yeah. So I just want to, this is a theme that we're seeing in the, in the entrepreneurs that are really successful in that at some point they became a high trust in themselves. So we have a trust pyramid. So it starts with self, then interpersonal, then with a team, and then with an organization, then interorganizational. So at some point, every entrepreneur that's successful has, has reached 
that point in their journey. Mm -hmm. I do trust myself. And when I got to this point, it coincided with a lot of things, but it enabled me to very much trust my team to the point where today, as I'm speaking to you, they're self-managed. There's no micromanaging happening one way or the other, but our business is healthier than it ever has been. I'm working on it rather than day to day. I work on it about 20% of my time, honestly. And again, it's never been more healthy. The profit margins have never been as high and I haven't you know, I've never been as happy that the team has never been as happy. It's just a win for everyone. There is a key to uh, finding the right people in order to place your trust in, but just the ability to trust is the first barrier that I think you have to get over. Well, two things I want to unpack here. First, I want to unpack the story. What is this negativity that, that sort of I guess, led you to where you are. And the second thing I want to unpack is, you know, how do you create a self-sustaining business? So I'm sure that didn't just happen overnight either. It did not happen overnight. It happened over 20 years. But um, so I grew up in the Midwest in, I was born in 71. So really coming to age in the late seventies, mid eighties. And if you can recall that, or if you can't recall that, if you, uh, to, to let you know, there was no Oprah, there was no Dr. Phil, There wasn't a lot of help for domestic abuse, uh, physical or mental abuse, therapy. It was just kind of, especially where I lived, it just wasn't as prevalent. So I had a mother who was severely abusive to me and, you know, she had a mental illness that was not diagnosed. And really I was, you know, looking for someone to save me, anyone, a police officer, a neighbor, somebody at school. I wanted somebody to see what was happening to me and save me. And no one came, no one saved me. But as the course of my life went on, I became my own savior. And now in the last 10 years, wow. I mean, I don't even think about having somebody else swoop in and save me. I now know that I have that power. I may have always had it, but I didn't have access to support to know that for sure. Yeah. So this, I guess, is the theme for your whole childhood. And then at what point did you actually physically move away? How old were you then? Yeah. So uh, at the age of 16 on Christmas day, I was basically dumped slash abandoned at a youth emergency shelter service and never returned home. So uh, they were trying to finagle maybe me going to foster care. Meanwhile, I was concert master, first violin in my string quartet and in the symphony. I was studying with a college professor at Drake University. So I wasn't off gallivanting around and partying. Unfortunately, I never learned how to (laughs) party and let loose. But anyway, and I decided, no way are you putting me in foster care. I could be 200 miles away from Des Moines in God knows where I won't be able to study. So somehow I was able to find a book on a bookshelf at this youth emergency shelter. And I read through it and I realized that I was actually an abandoned youth and not a runaway. And that differentiation gave me 
um, a, a sort of emancipation status, even though we didn't have an official emancipation status in Iowa. So at 16, I was fully on my own. So which, you were able to be on your own. Well, I mean, was I able? Well, no. yeah, I, I know my father left home at 14. Yeah. So yeah. I understand. Yeah. I developed a way to uh, take care of myself and I, I became an adult very quickly and wasn't able to enjoy teenage years, early twenties years as the age that you're supposed to be. I was fully functioning as an adult at 16 with people that were in their late twenties, thirties, and forties, because I was working at a restaurant with that age group of people. So music has to have played a big part to your abilities to cope. Oh, so much. So people ask me now if I meditate. I don't. However, I think one of the things that I learned very early on is that when I was stressed, upset, or scared, you know, torn up about boys, you know, all the things, I would sit at the piano and I would play for a half hour to two hours, sometimes singing, sometimes not. It didn't matter. And that does put me in a meditative state. So the answer is, do you meditate? Yes, sort of, but not how you do. <laughs> and um, it does. I mean, I've poured my heart out into writing songs, to recording them, to performing them on stage. That really is the way I was able to express my pain and anguish. I express some joy too. They're not all sob story songs, but it definitely was a channel for me to go into. And if I didn't have that channel, I don't know what I would have done. Um, some people do this in writing, in a journal, which I also did, or art, or running, or exercise. There are lots of ways into that meditative state. I chose, you know, music, playing the piano, playing the violin, playing the guitar, writing songs. Yeah, for me, music was. I I always define myself as a musician, even though I don't practice, yeah. uh, because I think, especially as a child. Uh, and even as an adult, you understand energy in a different way than other people do. You understand when the energy is high, you understand when it's low, you understand when it's dissonance, you understand what harmony <laughs> is. You just understand these things that most people that aren't musicians don't understand. And so I can see how it, it would just, you know, you could change the whole state of your body and you really, at the cellular level using your, your music and to help you survive it. I think my father did the same thing too. He could play any instrument uh, that he picked up. All I had to do is hear a song and play it. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so as you, as what did you do with your music after you left? How did that evolve? So music really did save my life, I would say. And it could have been the title of my book, but I'm not sure how many people would want to read that book. It seems a little Hallmark special uh, title like, but I was able to get a full ride scholarship to college at University of Kansas. Then I moved to Iowa State. I was the concert master of the symphony there. Then I transferred to Drake University. That really was a good catapult into that formal education. I wouldn't say that for me, going to those colleges really added to um, my success because I wasn't able to focus that much in school except for music. And I ended up starting to make quite a bit of money performing before I even graduated. So I didn't graduate, but being able to be at higher education set me apart from people that were like me that were struggling. 
right? And so I always had that entrepreneurial spirit and that engine in my uh, gut. So I began performing with the string quartet. And then I found myself performing for like Jane Smiley's Pulitzer Prize winning reception at Iowa State. And for the inauguration of our uh, governor, I was hiring some of my college professors to play not only with me and my quartet, but in other groups when I was overbooked. So I was already, I was always hustling, right? Always hustling, but in a, in classical music. So <laughs> that's not really what people put together with that word hustle. Then I was able to start singing after I left Drake because Drake really wanted me to focus on being the violinist and on being in the first violin section. They didn't want me to be distracted, uh, but I moved uh, to San Francisco and I started playing in cafes. And in 2001, I recorded my first CD and not only did I record it, but I learned, I paid for my education in becoming a record producer by really paying attention to all the you know, running of lines and cables and sound checks and mic checks and what mic works for my voice and what mics work for, you know, miking a timpani or one one of my songs, uh, we actually had bagpiper in and that's a really loud instrument. So it was a great education. And then I went on to record seven CDs and play at, you know, in jazz clubs in New York and the Monterey Jazz Festival in San Francisco and Yoshi's and lots of really great listening rooms. I was able to perform for Clint Eastwood. He sat five feet away from me and I was told, you know, Clint might come in and listen to like a song or two, but don't be afraid or don't be bummed out if he leaves. He might not stay. He stayed for the entire time. So that was a great notch in the belt. That's awesome. So then I'm seeing how this gave you some real know-how and confidence for event planning mm. uh, because you're beginning to learn, you know, some of the basis of what it might take because <laughs> you're at a lot of events. Yes. <laughs> right. So I was performing for private social and corporate events as a musician singing and playing the violin. And then you know, I was booking other groups instead of me, instead of turning down the gig. And then in 2001, I created a real business with a business license, paying taxes, and I called it Entire Productions. But really, that name was a misnomer because we weren't event planning at that time. We were just supplying artists of every genre, every discipline from local to headline talent. But as we grew a client base and as they saw that they could really depend on us. They saw that we were very organized and we were also creative. We had that split brain. We, meaning me at the time, because it was small. They started asking us to plan events. And so we did plan a few events, but then we got into this position where we were getting so much business from event planners that I was afraid if we continued to accept event planning requests, that we'd start to kind of upset them and alienate them. And maybe they would stop calling us because we were potentially taking their events. Um, in about 2015, uh, we kind of flipped the switch over because we needed to diversify. And we started doing both. So full event planning in which a lot of our artists and musicians and experiences and interactive activities would happen or maybe not at all. Maybe we'd be planning the whole event and they didn't have entertainment, but for the most part they would. Or we would supply entertainment 
to somebody else's event and only do that portion. And today we do both of those things. And because of the pandemic, we do them both in person, traditional style, and virtual, the new style. <laughs> yeah, that must have been quite uh, during the pandemic. That, that's like a whole other story I want to hear about. But I want to make sure we talk about your uh, your business, too, and how you've grown it. Because I know you've been on the Inc. 5000 for, I think, for three years. Three years in fastest growing. So she is doing something right, listeners. Let's listen up so we can learn too. Hitting those revenue marks to be on that list is really important for scaling and growing your company. So I was doing a lot right. But the question I am never asked by anyone in general, because it's not polite to ask, is, okay, great, you have this revenue, but what's your profit? And I think that's a missing point that businesses and entrepreneurs need to really focus on. So we have been profitable each year, but how profitable, right? You can be a dollar profitable and still call yourself a profitable business, right? Um, I suppose. Yeah. No, I know exactly build your wealth, but yeah. But it is a true statement, right? If you have a dollar profit at the end EBITDA, you are a profitable business. So I'm really focusing now on profit versus revenue. And our profit margin is a lot higher in our company. We don't have sales goals or goals for the company that refer to a revenue number anymore. None. We never speak of it. That has made a huge difference in our business. I hope you're enjoying the show. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're looking to improve any area of your life, one of the first things you'll want to do is to figure out where you are today and where the gaps are, and then really get clear on where you want to go. Visionary leaders need clarity, like human beings need oxygen. It's essential. That's why my team and I put together a great starting point for you on your trusted leader journey. It's called the Trusted Leader Profile, and it will allow you to take charge of the atmosphere in your business by helping you understand your trusted leader style and how you can elevate the level of trust in your business. With understanding, you can make better choices and grow the level of trust and your results. For being a listener to the show, it's 100% complimentary for you to access the profile. All you have to do is go to www.sudico.com slash profile. And Sudico is S-U-D-Y-C-O. Again, that's www.sudico.com slash profile. I really believe that the profile will help you understand the norms you bring to your business and unlock the next level of leadership for you. There you go. What you focus on is what you get, right? I guess. I know for me, it's probably been, I don't know, 25 years ago or something. I remember um, asking uh, my husband for to calculate for me, because he's an engineer, calculate for me, how much money do we have to have outside of retirement for me to never have to work another day in my life? And so he gave me that number and we probably hit it about 20 years ago. And uh, it didn't stop me from working, but I knew I had built enough wealth 
Yes. That the safety I didn't net have in place. to work anymore. Yeah. And then of course that we just continued to build, build wealth yeah. too. But yeah. so many business entrepreneurs don't focus on using their business to build wealth. I'm always surprised by that. <laughs> I didn't for the first 10 years, I didn't care about it. I didn't know about it. It was a lifestyle business. As long as I was making what I needed to make to make a living, that's all I cared about. It really wasn't until 2013 or 14, so 13 to 14 years into the business, that I looked at or considered or allowed my business to scale and grow. But you have to remember, my focus really was in performing. That's where my focus was going. And what fills me up is those kind of wins, the, the, the writing and the recording and the performing. And in business, what fills me up is having the business, doing the cool events, being able to hire not only artists, but full-time employees. So that is actually part of my compensation. So it's, it was hard to switch that mindset in my mind to create a profit margin for my business that was above and beyond and outside of that. And I can completely understand that because it's really evolutionary at many, many steps of evolution to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, It's completely understandable because where you started from, yeah. And also your talent. (laughs) When people are highly talented at something, um, I think it's harder for them to sometimes see the the big picture because it's, it's your talent is so much of who you are. Right that you can't see it. I call it the entrepreneurial paradox. The more we are who our businesses are, the less we can actually see it. (laughs) It's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because I'm, I feel, I find joy in a lot of things and I'm satisfied, even if I'm not making a ton of money, it's a curse because I can't think I have to prod myself to think bigger and outside of myself. And I do that upon occasion. Like, let's give it, let's, I'm going to give you an example. Most authors that create a book that they want to sell, and it's not just a business card for them, which is fine, sell, I think, no more than 250 books in the lifetime of their book sales. My goal, my first goal is $25,000 or 25,000 copies sold. My real goal is I want 25,000 people to read the book. So really in my, when I'm saying that, I, I know the reality is really a person's going to read the book if they buy it more than if somebody, if I just handed it to them for free, right? So that is my, that's, that will fill me up if people read it. Of course, I need them to buy it too, but my greater desire is that. That's a huge number, by the way, 25,000 books for someone like me with my platform. That is a goal. That's a reach goal that is it'll be challenging to get there. However, I have a bigger goal and I want to practice saying it because if I don't say it, I'm never going to get anywhere near it. And that's 500,000 books. Sold. Sold. Or read. I would love for them all to be read, but let's be honest. <laughs> well, read or listened to because yes, Audible. Yeah. Cause I, I like my, I like my books yes. on Audible. Yes. And my you. Audible will include music from my CDs. It'll be oh, the, that's awesome. the songbook of my life. So anyway, those two numbers, both of those numbers are way outside of my comfort zone of what probably the reality is. And before I would have never, ever thought those numbers 
or said them out loud? Well, here you are. We're telling everyone. So jump on board, everyone. You got to get get a book. It's going to be in yeah, lots the, of formats. So the reason I want people to read it, honestly, and this will completely pair with what I just said, I want to make an impact on every single person that has read the book's life. I don't need to have them transform their entire lives. That is not what this book is about. But if you, Sue, read the book and you find a, a thing, you may not even realize it, but if I have impacted you to make a tiny tweak to get happier, find more joy, find more business, find more whatever, that is what I want. I don't need to hear about it. You don't need to report back. Of course, it feels good when you do, but that over the monetary, the financial outcome, that is the most important thing to me. I'm also, you know, I'm 50 years old. So impacting and leaving a legacy is more important to me than it would have been when I was 30 or younger. Yeah. I also think that when you're doing things that come from your core, you don't need to worry about the money. You do it and the money follows. Uh, I've, I've just found that over and over and over and over in my career that you don't need to worry about it. It will just, it, it just connects with people and, and it will just follow. And books are one of those things. I know when I wrote my first book, um, I pre-sold 10,000 copies because I was asked to write the book. So that was easy. Now with this one, which I have to show you just came this week. I actually oh, have a see. copy. Look. Oh, it's great. <laughs> so, uh, when I wrote this book now, uh, which is actually my fourth book, but the other ones I wrote for construction, uh, now it's my, this is my life's work. So Yes. Uh, trying to help leaders think and act like a trusted leader. Also, we have a journal that goes with it. So I love it. Both came this week. Congratulations. So exciting. So I want to leave, I want to leave the list listeners with some, you know, some of your insights on, on how you created a self-running business, because I think mm-hmm. uh, you can't scale if you don't get there. Yeah. So what, what are the things, what are the lessons you've learned and the advice you would give? You must put down in writing and also preferably video the way everyone, every department, every role does their job, not only for them to refer back to, but to train on and also very importantly, so everyone's on the same page doing it the same way and system and processes. This is the reason why we were able to scale and grow, period, end of story. And to give you an idea about that, we were able, because of the system I built within Salesforce, it's um, definitely proprietary to our company and our industry, we were able to produce 777 events with two people in operations. Wow. Today- Let's just just let that sink in a minute. That that is- how many people have a hard time getting their Christmas party put together (laughs) (laughs) or Thanksgiving dinner? (laughs) So we've automated in my voice and our company and our brand's voice, anything that's repeatable and lower touch. Anytime our client makes a change, they're basically making it in our system. So no one has to go in and retype what Sue, like if you've changed your event from December 24th to this 26th, that's great. You will have done it in our system. So a lot of that back and forth chasing information, is, is that's one of the things. But thinking big picture, like today, 
I could not work. I could say to my team, oh my gosh, I have an emergency. I don't know how long I'll be gone, six months a year. My business would continue running without me. And honestly, I hate to say this, it may actually grow bigger without me because my team thinks bigger. They have, I've given the permission, but also they're not me. They think bigger than I do. So they get more out of our clients and negotiate more with our vendors than I do. So I'm like, well, here's what I would do, but don't listen to me. You do you. (laughs) So I think the systems and processes, the writing down everything so that, you know, your employees can train or retrain themselves is really important. That culture that you create in your core values is really the heartbeat and the center of any of this stuff satellite stuff that I talk about working. So if you've got problem people that you're just letting ride because you don't want to deal with it and, you know, or maybe you have a bigger company, you don't even know there's some problem people and you don't have that management layer that is really working toward those core values and goals, things are going to start falling apart. So having those in place, it's hard to do that first And it's also hard to do in the middle of everything, but you have to do it. And you have to not even talk about your goal, I'm sorry, your goals and your culture and your core values. Instead of talking about them and reminding, okay, people, remember our core values are excellence, collaboration. You have to live it, right? You have to live it. And then you can point to, okay, when somebody asks a question in Slack and everyone responds, that is collaboration, right? So those are my secrets. So I have, I have several questions on this because I know a lot of people, particularly some of the people that are listening and they're, they've grown to a certain level and maybe they're just to about to the point where they're going to put a management team in or they should put a management team in. You know, tell us about that journey because I think a lot of people really stumble there. Yes. So. I think people stumble because they're like, can I afford it? Or can I let go? Can can their ego let go? Or will their team respond positively? And so the answers to those questions are ego. If you don't let go, you're not going to scale and grow. And you're not going to be creating a business that is as valuable as it could ever be. Number one, you got to take yourself out of the center. If you're not ready to do that, check back in because that is... The holy grail is when you are able to remove yourself from the center. Okay. And then two, can you not, can you afford it? You might not be able to not afford it, right? You, it, you might have to dig into some reserves. You may have to put some, put a little bit of debt, you know, on your balance sheet, but that is enabling you to grow into your fullest potential rather than stay stagnant and just do things as they used to be. And that about people. I just want to stop here and just tell me, think about what you just said compared to where you came from. Yeah. That is, that is monumental. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I would never have done that. I would never have spent money. I didn't have in order to grow, but now it's an absolute like no brainer right now. A lot of companies that their businesses suffered during the pandemic, have access to the PPP and the EIDL loans and such. And if you use that very inexpensive money wisely, 
like 3.75%, like amazing. 1%, amazing. Um, If you are really strategic about how you use it and you plan it out, you can add people to grow your business uh, back into what it used to be or what it should be. And that third thing that I mentioned, of course, there are many more things to say, but if you're worried that your people, your team won't react positively, you may have to be looking at, are these the right people with the right talents and the ability for our company to move further, right? They might've been the right ones for the time up to now. And making that decision is very uncomfortable, but you have to take your emotions out of it. And a lot of people say, you know, it's going to be better for them. It's better for the company. It's better for everyone, but that's hard to get around, right? So move that person into another position. If that is something that's accessible, if that person is not the right person, the right butt and the right seats with the capacity, they have to be moved to a place where they fit all three things, or maybe they're not a fit for your organization anymore. And I hear that uh, over and over and over is a common theme in that in order to grow, you can't grow with the same people that brought you where you are. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a big challenge. So uh, you know, congratulations in managing that and creating such a high trust organization based on trust. How many employees do you have now? I went from 14 to, I think we're at six right now. So it's a very small team and we're doing a lot of revenue, which we don't talk about. uh, And we're profitable more than we ever have been. We are poised to double or triple in late 22 into 23 if we don't roll back in pandemic situations. So because we'll be able to do full production in-person events and the virtual, and we've added a couple of other divisions. So you actually, in the pandemic, which is another thing I want to talk about and how you pivoted, because um, you obviously pivoted well, uh, is that, how did you do that? And it sounded like it added a whole nother revenue stream for you, new, new options. It will be a whole nother revenue stream for you. I was really into technical. I'm a very tech savvy person and I'm driven and in, in, intrigued by it. Not everyone is. A lot of people in my industry were like, we're hitting pause until live events come back. We're not going there. We went there and we created a faster paced, shorter segment entertainment wrapped around messaging and keynotes that enabled our clients to really have successful virtual events where people don't want to not be on. So our goal is to keep people interested and intrigued instead of, oh my God, when is this going to be over? <laughs> it's fine. Um, so, so it sounds like the, your virtual events is going to, I don't see it going away. I see, uh, I see it expanding in, in, with its own use. Uh, it's expanded so doing, many we, people's businesses. I know we switch to virtual events instead of face-to-face events, and we do about 320 events a year face-to-face and now they are virtual. And what I would say is that what we've learned is that they're, they're different. Uh, There's benefits to it and there's things that are better being face-to-face. You kind of need to choose which type of event you want. Yeah. So as you, as you've grown this business, uh, what about your performing or how much performing are you doing? 
I did a holiday concert last December virtually that will uh, roll out for this year, uh, a replay. And I'll do some performing when I present my book launch. Um, so instead of doing book readings, I'm doing book launch performances. So a little about a bit of performance will be sprinkled in, which I'm looking forward to. That sounds so fun. And uh, a book, what made you decide to write it, write this into a book? I'd always thought that I would do it, but I went to a conference a couple of years ago where the aha moment was it's time it's now. And we were, uh, I was being mentored by another author and I was like, oh my God, I think it's time. So there was a two year slog. Memoirs are tough. Books are tough. Books are tough. Memoirs. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't written another kind of nonfiction book. I will but I have a feeling it'll be slightly easier than the memoir. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so excited to read it and, uh, and listen to it because I want to make sure I hear the music part too. Um, yeah, that's, that will touch my soul. Uh, so what, what advice can you give entrepreneurs who you know, may have started with challenges and they want to grow their business? Yes, I think that, same advice I would give to any entrepreneur is to find mentorship, find an advisor, dive deep into the work of learning what you need to learn. That's the shortcut. That is the shortcut. That's the only real growth hack is to learn the tried and true way. You can improvise a little bit throughout But if you don't know the tried and true way, you're just spinning wheels and making spaghetti. Yeah. Well, to me, the theme here is, uh, again, your trust in yourself and your ability to trust in interpersonal relationships and grow a team. Uh, And and for every event, it's it's another team. It's kind of a team of teams. Um, Yeah. So I think that, uh, again, that's, that's the theme. And because I don't think all the people in your industry who did not see the uh, virtual platform as the next thing for them, uh, but rather waited is exactly, I don't think that they had your mindset. They didn't have the ability to know, yeah, we will, we will overcome. We will figure it out. We will. Yes. And unfortunately, a lot of those people laid off people or their employees are working part-time or they've closed up shop. Yeah. Because this is not going away. This is going to be, this is going to be around for a while, if not for the rest of our lifetime. And you have to adapt. Yes. So I just want everyone to understand the perspective of here's a business that is growing and growing during a pandemic when there are no events technically in face-to-face and so that is a remarkable thing uh, that we all can learn from. And uh, it's, I'm so excited to just uh, read your book and learn more and uh, hopefully stay in touch. Oh, we will stay in touch. Absolutely. You're, you can't get rid of me. <laughs> oh, good. You can't get rid of me. Either. I can't wait to get your book and your journal. So thank you for letting me know. When is it launching? It's launching February 1st. Yep. I'll yeah. be there. Me too. I'll be there <laughs> March 23rd, 22nd, 22nd. Yeah. Got it. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. We'll do it again. 
closer to your book launch. We'll maybe we'll do it again. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much Natasha. Thanks. Take care. Hey, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Lead with Trust. And that wherever you're listening to this podcast, you will subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, send it to someone who you think can really use this message that you got today. And also, please leave us a review. You know, your honest review, wherever you listen to your podcasts, would be much appreciated. And of course, the more reviews we get, the better they are, the better for the podcast. I'm truly on a mission to get more and more people to understand that trust is the essential element. So I hope you'll be part of that. You know, this show really exists to help you leaders to build your business on a foundation of trust so that you can reap the rewards of becoming that top performer in your market. I see over and over where no one can possibly reach the levels of those people that understand how to build a high trust culture in their business. Now today, if you're really curious about starting your trusted leader journey, you can get started right away if you just take the free trusted leader profile and you can learn where you fall along the trusted leader continuum. And this really can unlock your confidence on where you are and what you need to do. It's very specific on what you can do. Gives you a snapshot of your leadership style. So if you want to take that, just go to www.sudico.com and then forward slash profile, and you will get immediate access to the trusted leader profile. Once again, that is www.sudico.com forward slash profile. All right, that's a wrap. I just can't wait to hang out with you again on our next episode.